What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Cat Brooks. June 24th marked one year since Sadat's decision overturned Roe v. Wade in this country. What has followed has been an avalanche of bills and laws across the nation, making abortion access impossible for some and severely limiting access to reproductive health care, reproductive justice for thousands of people with wombs. To discuss, we are joined by Imani Gandhi, editor-at-large for our news group. She also co-hosts the podcast, Boom, Lawyered. Good morning, Imani. Good morning, Kat. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Imani, if you were to pull out the three top headlines for, for yourself as someone that does this work over the last year in terms of the impact of the Dobbs decision, what would they be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think one of them would be that as much as anti-choicers have complained that abortion is black genocide, I would argue that abortion bans are black genocide given the extremely mm. high black maternal mortality rates and the differences in survivability between black people and white people, white pregnant people and black pregnant people. Second, I would say that um, that the pushback from pro-choice people, people who support abortion rights, has taken Republicans and conservatives and Christian evangelicals off guard. I don't think that they were prepared for voters rising up in places like Kansas and Wisconsin and um, to either save abortion rights or in the case of Wisconsin, to to elect someone to the Supreme Court who would essentially save abortion rights in Wisconsin. And then third, I would say, um, I would say that they, we have sunk even further in sort of a morass of anti-scientific thinking. And we are dealing with a group of people who have their heads in the sand, very ostrich-like, about how difficult it is for doctors and patients, pregnant patients, to navigate this new legal landscape that we're in right now. I think that you know there's been a lot of sort of um, criticism of doctors for not, you know, performing abortion-related care or for not treating pregnant people the way they might have before the Dobbs decision, and that's because. The, le the legalities of the treatment are so up in the air, so confusing, right? A person comes into an emergency room with a miscarriage, they're bleeding. Well, what was the cause of the bleeding? Did they do something to themselves to cause this miscarriage? Is it really an abortion? Were they taking abortion pills? What can we do to help this person? Those conversations are no longer between medical professionals or between the medical professional and the patient. They're now between medical professionals and hospital administrators and medical professionals and lawyers. And I think that right. has had a drastic effect on the level of care that people can get. Yeah, that was actually somewhere I was going to go a little bit later. I was going to ask you about the chaos or confusion in the medical field, um, like specifically states like Idaho, right, who has laws where abortion is allowed if the woman's life is in danger. Um, but a doctor quoted in an NPR article says, but when we're looking at jail time, how do we draw that line? Right. I mean, when you're looking at jail time, how do you draw that line? It's hard to draw the line, particularly because if you find yourself on the wrong side of that line, it's not just as I think some anti-choicers would like to portray it, doctors protecting their own butts or not doing their jobs in a sufficient way in order to avoid liability in order to it, because they are somehow incompetent. But what they are doing is they are doing, they're conducting their jobs, they're doing their jobs in a way that will help them avoid liability. Not because of some selfish need to the extent that there are people who think that it is some, somehow selfish to not want to go to prison for providing medical care, but also because it hurts their other patients, right? I mean, 
even if you find sort of an activist doctor who is willing to put it all on the line and go to prison, you know, it, 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 because they provided some sort of abortion care, what does that do to that doctor's other patients, right? It doesn't really help the problem. It's a larger problem. And so I think that, honestly, I believe that anti-choicers were not expecting this level of backlash. And I have also said for a, for a year now that there are people who were marching for life, who were marching for these restrictions, who didn't really understand what they were marching for, right? They didn't really understand that, an, that a miscarriage is essentially a spontaneous abortion. So when you are banning abortion care, you are in many cases banning care for miscarriages. You are banning care for ectopic pregnancies. And so what you get are these people who are now maybe of reproductive age in their 30s, they're trying to have kids, they maybe have a problematic pregnancy, and they're finding themselves sitting in hospitals or sitting in at, at urgent care clinics, waiting for treatment, wondering, well, this doesn't have anything to do with what I was marching for in college. I was marching for the rights for babies to live. Not for the right to have to sit here and bleed out on a gurney while a group of doctors and administrators and lawyers figure out whether or not they can help me because the state of Mississippi or the state of Georgia or the state of Alabama has has put into effect these sort of Mad Lib style laws where the laws are written by national anti-abortion groups and then just passed around to states and states fill in their names and their and the you know the gestational limit for the ban, but they don't really read the legislation. They don't really understand how the the, the language in the legislation doesn't correlate to what doc the language that doctors use when they're treating patients. And I you know you, you see that so clearly for example, when it comes to laws that are tied to the fertilization of the egg, as opposed to the last menstrual cycle, the last menstrual period. If you tie it to last menstrual period, it becomes apparent why it is, for example, that six-week bans make no sense. Because by the time you realize you're pregnant, you're usually about two weeks past your last period. And so at that point, you have about a month to figure out what you're going to do, to decide whether or not to get abortion care, to figure out where you can get it now, to figure out how you're going to take care of the children that you already have. Because we have to remember something like 60, 60 to 67 percent of people who get abortions are already mothers or already parents. So it's just a difficult morass that has been made even more complicated by the fact that anti-choicers have not been telling the truth about what their goals are. Um, they've been essentially lying to, to the public and saying, we're not trying to take over reproductive care. We're just trying to send it back to the states. Well, that lie was already you know, laid bare within six months when Republicans started talking about a national abortion ban. They don't wanna send this issue back to the states. They want to, they want to end this issue. They want this to not be an issue at all. They want to end abortion. They likely want to end contraception. And all of these things are tied together. And the people who are advocating for these very policies don't really understand that this is what they were advocating for. And this actually might be one of the reasons that Republicans lose in 2024 because they didn't expect the level of backlash and they didn't expect they didn't expect that people would grow aware of the fact that it is the federal courts that are playing fast and loose with their rights and that that is something that we can do something about. That is something that people who have a problem with the way the courts are conducting their business, they can pressure, pressure their representatives, they can pressure President Biden to engage in real legitimate court reform. And that's something that Biden was unwilling to do in 2021, but now we're in 2023, the stomach for court reform has grown over the past couple of years. And so now I think is the time to start really pushing for legitimate, concrete reform. When, when, when the Dobbs decision came down, of course, I was concerned about abortion restriction, but I think, we, and I think we even talked about it last time you were on the show, 
Access to reproductive health care services, which low-income women of color often seek out at clinics because they can't afford doctors. Um, what has been the impact on their funding? What have we seen in terms of services being depleted for women simply seeking things like STD testing? It's 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 very difficult, right? I mean, there are a lot of independent clinics that even independent clinics in the South in Alabama that have had to stop their abortion care, but are still open trying to provide SDD screenings and contraception and pregnancy help. Um, but you know, something like one in four Black women look to, for example, Medicaid for their insurance, and if they are if they are stuck in a cycle of either uninsurability or poverty to where they can't pay for their, their healthcare out of pocket, then I, frankly, pregnancy is the port of access at, at which people would, or getting an abortion, so sort of searching for that reproductive healthcare was oftentimes poor women's, poor pregnant people's first point of contact with healthcare, right? Because when you get pregnant, you think, oh, I really ought to see a doctor. Whereas if you may, you feel ill in some other way, you might feel as if you can just survive it. You don't need to go to the doctor. You can't afford it. So oftentimes, Black women would first have their first initial healthcare appointment when they find out they're pregnant and they're looking for solutions. If they live in a state in the South, for example, I keep mentioning the South, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Georgia, where abortion is banned, and they feel as if they cannot, they have no options, then they don't really have a reason to go seek care to figure out what those options are, particularly if they don't feel as if they can afford prenatal care. So that's one way in which Black women are really impacted by the loss of jobs. They're also impacted by, um, you know, the sort of contraception deserts. I can't believe who it was that first called it a contraception desert. It might have been um, Dr. Gabrielle Perry. But these, are these, these areas where clinics have had to close because of, you know, these abortion bans, well, those clinics don't just offer abortion care. They also offer contraception, as you said, STD screenings. If those clinics have to close, then that's one less access point for healthcare for people who live in those areas. So, you know, and then just generally in terms of, of the increase in criminalization that, that um, quite clearly has a, a more deleterious mm -hmm. effect on black and brown women because they are the, the members of society who often have more contact with state agencies, with government agencies, right? Whether it's because they are living in poverty, they're trying to access um, SNAP benefits or food stamps, or because they live in poverty, they are more susceptible to being stereotyped and treated with bias when they go to the doctor. So maybe they have to have some sort of contact with child protective services, or if it is found that they have narcotics in their system, they end up on the, on the business end of a, of a conversation with the police. I mean, these are, and all of the ways in which black women, black and brown people have these points of contact with state agencies, it's all driven by bias and stereotypes because the people who work in these agencies, even doctors, for example, who even doctors who think that they are excellent doctors and they provide the best care, they are not immune from bias. There are studies that show that, for example, they give black women fewer pain medications because they you know, assume that black women are drug seekers. Or if a black woman comes in and says that they've been taking drugs, even prescription drugs, a, doc a doctor or a nurse is more likely to call the police on a black or brown patient than they are a white patient. So all of these points of contact with the state, with carceral systems, increases the likelihood that a black or brown pregnant person is going to find themselves incarcerated for whatever it is that the state has decided makes them a bad mother, makes them a person worth demonizing. So, you know, just sort of across the board, it's been a really bad result 
for black and brown women. And I think part, so much of the problem has to do with the way black and brown pregnant patients are perceived. Um, you know, I mean, even going back to, for example, discussions of crack babies, right? We found out 20 years after the media had saturated the airwaves about these black women who were giving birth to, you know, a biological underclass and, and the sort of the sort of honing in on black women's lack of responsibility and lack of um, maternal responsibility, I guess I would call it, as a reason for further incarceration, for further state contact, for further harassment. And it's it's just going to get worse. It's just going to get worse because we are living in a country where uh, where we have voter suppression, right? We have gerrymandered states. We have people who are living in places where they can't even vote their way out of the reproductive crisis, the healthcare human rights crisis that we're in right now because they're being denied the right to vote, because they're being gerrymandered out of districts where they might be able to vote for someone who represents them. So it's all tied together and it's all a mess. All right. Well, on that cheery note, Amani Gandhi, I've got to let you go, but we are um, definitely going to continue to track this issue on L&D and look forward to having you back. I always appreciate your insights. Thanks so much for coming on this morning. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>